Well, I have been uh, reading through a book on humanity by a guy called Yuval Noah Harari. I don't know if anyone's been reading any of his books. He's got two, actually. Uh, one is called uh, Sapiens, which looks at how we got to be where we are today. And although he's very honest about some of the shortcomings of humanity as a race, he basically says human beings are exceptionally progressive. He says this. If we could have the next slide up, please. In the past 1,000 years, humans have evolved to take over the world and through the likes of genetic engineering, are on the verge of overcoming natural selection and becoming gods. What do you think about that? The second book he's writing, or has written, which I'm reading just now, is called Homo Deus. Uh, well, Sapiens look back at how we've come to be who we are today. Sapien, uh, Homo Deus looks forward at what we're likely to be tomorrow in 100 or 200 or 500 years if we last that long. Harari says, in short, we are potentially immortal. Okay? He says, in the 21st century, humans are likely to make a serious bid for immortality. Death. So he's speaking against religion here. Death is no metaphysical mystery. It's a technical problem that we can and should solve. And you don't need a second coming to solve it. A couple of geeks in a lab can do that. It is maddeningly interesting, this book. I can't stop picking it up, but I can't stop throwing it across the room. It's just like, what is this guy thinking about humanity? Does he open his eyes at all during the day? Does he sit behind a computer all the time writing meaningless books? At the same time, his take on where we've come from and where he thinks we're going, it, you have to read it because millions of copies are being sold and people are absolutely lapping it up. What do you think, though, about Harari's views on humanity, where we've come from. We're exceptionally progressive. Where we're going, potentially immortal. Well, what does God's word say about these notions? Well, it says two things. It says humanity's made progress, but not where it matters. And it says everyone will die, but we're not without hope. And wonderfully, we find these two points from Genesis 4 and five, and those two points will be our outline tonight. If you've got a sheet, one of the sermon sheets when you came in, please make use of that. So number one is humanity has made progress. This is what the Bible says. Humanity's made progress, but not where it counts, not where it matters. Chapter four in Genesis records the aftermath of the fall. It shows how human beings walk when they're not walking with God's. Uh, Cain, the firstborn, as we saw last week, commits the first murder, tells the first lie, defiantly went out from the presence of God. And then as you read on through chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 11, essentially, you have humanity putting more and more distance between themselves and God. Now, what happened next after Cain went out from the presence of God is a little unexpected, really. Because we've just heard God's judgment on him. We've just heard about God's punishment on him. And then what we read 
is in verses 17 to 24 is that people did make exceptional progress. People at that time did make exceptional progress. Verse 17 in the first instance tells us just that Cain built a family. Now he already had a wife, another daughter of Adam and Eve. It sounds weird and even illegal to us, but Adam's children would have had to marry to fulfill God's commands to fill the earth, and they had, Adam and Eve had more children. But please note that God does not make this the norm. It's a very obvious temporary necessity, possible really only when the gene pool was so pure. But in essence, what these first few verses tell us in verse 17 and 18 is that Cain built a family and verses 17 and 18 provide for us what is basically a mini family tree. It's a mini genealogy. And what did that family do? Essentially, they built a city. They built a city. Now, when we think of a city, we think of Edinburgh. But when you read city here, don't think built-up urban area with a castle and a Cafe Nero in every corner. Think more of a settlement or five or six or seven or eight, nine, ten tents with some kind of border around it. Okay? The issue here isn't really what this city looks like. It's what this city says. What this city communicates. You see, God, earlier on in this chapter, had sentenced Cain to a life of wandering. So to settle down and build a city is both an, an, an indication of Cain's ongoing defiance of God. I'm not going to listen to you. What's your punishment to me? You're nobody to me. And he builds a city. He's going to settle down. But it's also an indication, perhaps, of his ongoing fear of reprisals. Remember this concern? You're gonna send me out from here, away from your presence, etc. I'm not gonna have the security that comes with knowing you. If somebody catches me, they're gonna kill me. Well, this, in all likelihood, building the wall around his, this encampment, he's trying to take security into his own hands. So still we see He's not a sorrowful man, is he? He's not feeling the guilt. He's not feeling weighed down by the shame of killing his brother. He's a remorseless, immoral man. He's no father figure for starting a family. He's no mayor for leading a city. And yet, amazingly, as we see in the verses that follow, this city became a place where both his family grows and civilization develops. Cain's kids make exceptional progress. Now, our society's curriculum presents a picture today of early man back then as some kind of knuckle-dragging, lower-jaw-protruding, grunt-muttering, hairy numpty. But verses 20 to 22 tell us something opposite to that. It tells us that the earliest members of society, the earliest inhabitants of the earth, were were astonishingly intelligent and amazingly sophisticated in many ways. So Cain's great, 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 great grandchildren were entrepreneurial pioneers of civilized society, even this kind of society that we know today. So Jabal, in verse 20, the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. Jubal, 21, was the artist in the family, the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. And Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Now, as a society, they developed methods for producing food, clothing, 
shelter, industry. At the same time, they discovered an ear for music and poetry and song. So I hope you'll understand me when I'm saying, this is not caveman stuff. This is a great night out in a fancy restaurant with lamb on the plate and Chopin on the keys. So the Bible reports the emergence of human creativity in the midst of a godless, a godless society and doesn't condemn it. Why? This is what we call common grace. Common grace. Common meaning, well, grace meaning God's undeserved kindness, undeserved favor, common, meaning made available to all without any discrimination whatsoever. So people did make exceptional progress, but people regressed where it mattered. So morality took a backward step, and we see this in this character limit. The first thing we see in verse 19 about this character Lamech is that he redefined marriage. In verse 19, Lamech takes two wives. In Genesis 2.24, God said, one. Now, that's God's good design. But Lamech is redesigning life on his own terms. He becomes the first polygamist. And ultimately, it's bad for society. The second thing we see about this guy Lamech is that he had no regard for human life. Earlier in chapter four, God had condemned violence and murder very, very clearly. Cain's punishment was well known even to the, seventh gen the sixth generation of his grandkids. But in verses 23 and 24, we've got Lamech and this song of his, and he's celebrating violence as a glorious act of manliness, even evil Cain didn't do that. Ada and Zillah are his wives, he says. Pretty and sweet-voiced is what their names mean. Listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. Do you know something? In my study this week, I imagined him as a rapper. I imagined him singing a song of violence in the way that sometimes violence is sung about today. But as we saw earlier, they're much more sophisticated. It's probably a very good song. But how obnoxious and toxic and poisonous to not only be happy about taking someone else's life, but to boast about it and to boast about it before your wives as if it's some kind of picture of masculinity. And then he goes on, listen to this, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times, or you could read that, if Cain's revenge was seven times, then Lamech's revenge is 77 times. So this is harking back earlier to the chapter, of course, where God had promised Cain that if anyone did kill him, that person would be avenged hit Cain's death, that person would have revenge seven times over. That is, the punishment would be appropriately suitable to the crime that was committed. What does Lamech promise with the 77 times? Something inappropriate. 
something overwhelmingly inappropriate. If God promised in just judgment a suitable response, a suitable punishment, Cain's was going to, uh, Lamech's was going to be an avalanche. That's how violent this man is. You start to see how the book of Genesis is not just giving you a list of names here. It's telling you the story of humankind. Yes, exceptionally progressive, but look at this. Despite the rise of sophisticated civilization, humanity, as it further distances itself from God, is in free fall. It's still falling. So my encouragement for us today is not to be deceived by cultural progress. Just because a city's culture doesn't mean it's morally good. I mean, look at our own culture. Look at our own city. Edinburgh's awesome. It's way better than Glasgow. Its contribution to industry and technology and medicine is awesome. The steam engine, the TV, the telephone, modern-day anesthetics, the digestive biscuits have all come from Tunis, Edinburgh folk. And in this day and age, well, the level of education is very high. It humbly boasts two of the biggest arts and literature festivals in the world. Not one. No, one's not good enough for Edinburgh. We want to have two of the biggest festivals in the world. This is culture outside these doors. But is it making progress where it counts? Or is it taking steps further and further away from God's presence? We might well have invented the phone, but we use it for all sorts of evil, don't we? Nowadays, pornography, bullying, hookups, time-wasting, making threats. So behind this mask of progressive culture, technology, ex ex progressive communications, human ability, behind the mask of progressive culture, you find the same old problems. Cain lives on, Lamech lives on. We have made no moral progress. What do you think about that? Agree? Disagree? Why? Fast forward to the very end of the Bible and we see that Jesus Christ promises us a far better city. A better city to those who follow him in faith. And it's a city that is not only exceptional, it is a city where holiness dwells. In Revelation 21, 4 and 5, you read it's a city where there is no death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said and made himself super clear to humanity today, behold, look, see, I'm making all things new. That's what we need. Complete renewal. 
So to go there, you have to do what Cain did, didn't do and what Lamech never did. Own your sin, confess it. Turn to God and walk with him. That's what it means to follow him. Become a follower of Jesus, the one who died to take away our sin and very graciously give us not just common grace, but saving grace. The kind of grace that makes life a pilgrimage, if you like. A pilgrim's progress where day by day you make your way to the heavenly city of God's. Well, Genesis 4 shows us that Yuval Harari is wrong in his views on the progress we've made. He's also wrong about the future he anticipates. I mean, he claimed with great certainty that we're potentially immortal, but Genesis 5, this is point 2, says, actually, we're not. Everyone will die. Everyone will die but we're not without hope. And this is what you see from chapter four, verse 25, through to the end of 32. If you read in verse 25 with me, it says, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed Abel. Now, this is the best news that could make its way onto the page of Genesis at this point in time, because our hope, for this kind of serpent-crushing savior that was promised to Adam and Eve, um, it's hopeless. He's not going to come because it was either going to be Cain or Abel, but one's dead and the other one's just been condemned outside of the presence of God. And then what you have in, in these verses from 17 and following with, with Cain down to Lamech and his sons and daughter, what you have is the genealogy of Cain. But now, There's another genealogy that's introduced here, a line that even Luke picks up on in the gospel, chapter three. The line of Jesus Christ will come through a man called Seth. Seth. And Seth's story brings both good news and bad news. Here's the good news first. We're all image bearers. We're still image bearers. So this bit here is like a new beginning. Verse 25 it kind of echoes Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what's been underlined here is the fact that, okay, let's just remember, let's just recap from Genesis 2. We've got Adam made, uh, Genesis 1, sorry, Adam made in God's image. And then chapter 5, verse 3, you have, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. So what that's telling us is that despite the fall, humankind still bears the image of Adam and the image of God. Every child born from Adam onward does. That's every child, every person. That's why we value human dignity. But he doesn't just go back into the garden, this Seth. He's not allowed And the reason for that is that he's not only inherited God's image, he's inherited his dad's image and his dad's curse. This is the bad news. Though we are still image bearers, we're still curse carriers. Chapter five, let's face it, is riddled with death. 
there's a very obvious pattern to it. For each man that's mentioned, you have this, this rhythm to it. It's, you've got this guy. He lived, he fathered, he died. 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 Repeat after me. No, I'm joking. He that's what happens. Eight times, okay? There's that pattern there. But we have just this natural death coming, and then he died. Now, God told us to expect death. He told us this in Eden, and you read it throughout the Bible. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it explains what happened back then. It said, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people. It is a frighteningly frank teaching. There's no doubting the message. Death comes to all. Death is inescapable. But the great thing about chapter 5 is that it tells us that we are not without hope. There is hope for those who walk with God. So here we see, of course, Lamech, seventh from Adam in Cain's line. He was a picture of hell. But Enoch, seventh from Adam in Seth's line, is the definitive picture of heaven. Follow the mundane, temptingly skippable genealogy. Actually read it through carefully. And we're surprised by something. You're clicking your fingers or tapping your foot to the rhythm of the text, but all of a sudden you're, oh, oh, I'm out of time. Something has happened. Seth, he lived, he fathered, he died. Enosh, he lived, he fathered, he died. Canaan, he lived, he fathered, he died. Mahalalel, he lived, he fathered, he died. Jared, he lived, he fathered, he died. Enoch, he lived, he fathered, he, whoa, wait a minute. He didn't die. He didn't die. You're supposed to pause over that and say, what is that all about? What do you read in verse 22? Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years, which in this context, by the way, he's a spring chicken. Enoch, verse 24, walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because... God took him away. Could it possibly be that there is hope for curse-carrying humanity? Abject, violent, immoral, unkind, even those who seem a bit half-decent sinners like us. Is there hope for us? Yes. Yes, there is. Is it possible that Eden could one day be restored in the future? That we might just be potentially immortal? Yes. Enoch says, yes, he is the glorious anomaly in the history of humankind, really. One of two, him and Elijah, where he was spared death. Just as Christians who will be alive at the return of Christ will be. 
He was given a body, we assume, much like there is in Christ's body. And why did God take him like this? Well, the text tells us twice, just to drum it home. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Okay, what does walking with God actually mean? Well, again, the answer, as it was last week, is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. How does the New Testament inform our understanding of the Old Testament text? A vital way to understand our Old Testament. Here's what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For, who, for before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. So, in other words... Enoch, in this chapter of faith, it's saying Enoch had faith. And that pleased God. He trusted in God. He wasn't perfect. No one was. They're curse-carrying humans. No one is perfect. No one is righteous. Not one. But he delighted God through his faith. What is it about his faith? Well, Hebrews 11 goes on to tell us, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe, there's the faith, that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So how does Hebrews 11 help us understand this passage of Enoch walking with God and being taken? Well, it's telling us that Enoch lived believing, one, that God exists and that that mattered in life. And secondly, that Enoch lived believing that God is good and that from his hand come all good gifts and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So walking with God is essentially a picture of intimacy with God. It's a relationship with God. And it's a relationship that's founded not on your own personal performance, like you could scrub yourself up to say, right, Lord, I'm just that little bit more presentable for you now. That's a nonsense, and that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it's those who come recognizing, I am dressed in the filthiest rags that I could possibly have put on, and I've tried to scrub myself up, and that's only made me dirtier. I'm coming before you on the basis of one who is clean, Jesus Christ, and trusting in him that you'll accept me. That's the faith. That's the relationship. As Revelation 3 verse 4 says, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. So the big question is, friends, are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Like Enoch, on those two criterion, do you believe that God exists? Do you believe that God is good? Do you believe that God exists and he is good, that he's a creator and sustainer of all things, that he has made himself known through his word and his son, that he sent his son into the world to save us from our sins, that all who believe in Jesus are given strangely what Harari desperately seeks, immortality, eternal life in his name. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. This is where our hope lies in humanity, in everything, and especially in death. It's coming to us all. 
both my jobs, I've had to come face to face with death many times in lots of different circumstances. I've pressed as hard and as fast as I could on people's chests, trying to revive them from death in my previous job. And I've held hands of those who've slipped into death in my current. We've all experienced it. It's all around us. We all feel the pain of it. But you don't have to feel the pain of it forever. And the Bible teaches it's not the end. For people like us, we are all destined to die once and after that to face judgment. But our hope in death lies in walking with God through faith in Jesus Christ. So that when you see and savor his love, when you know him and grow to become like him, you will be walking with God. And through faith in him and with his spirit's help in you, you can do that. That life is doable. One day it will happen. You will be no more, as it said of Enoch. But the big question for everyone around you is, will we be able to say, God has taken her to himself? Or, God has taken him to himself? The answer to those questions will be, only if you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Full stop. Brothers and sisters who trust in Christ already, we will all die unless the Lord returns before we do. Be courageous in death, brothers and sisters, for death is not the end. C.H. Spurgeon, one of my favorite authors and preachers from years ago talks about his fears of death. He used to see it as a lion, fierce, ravaging him. But his understanding of the gospel transformed that where he said, why should I fear you death, old lion, broken teeth? You have no power over me. You are no more able to crush me. Only are you able to usher me into the very presence of the Savior who said, he will take me home. Be courageous in death. And in light of the death that surrounds us, be courageous in spreading the gospel and calling others to faith. Let's bow our heads and let's take a few minutes to pray.